Good morning, everyone. I'm Mel. And I'm Pippa. We're the creators and editors of Earthrise, the podcast and platform that focuses on the connection between human rights and environmental issues. Just a quick message before we begin. The views and research presented on this podcast are either our own or referenced on our website, www.earthrights.co.uk. We generally always record a few weeks ahead of release, so some facts or situations may have changed during this time. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Earthrights podcast. This is the second part of two bonus episodes on civil wars and peace processes. And so today we're going to be talking about Colombia and it's just me, Mel, today and I'm in conversation with Paula and Mary. And what's really lovely is that we're actually together for the first time. So this conversation is not being recorded over Zoom, which is a first for the Earthrights podcast. So yeah, welcome both of you. (laughs) Thank you. So we're going to be talking particularly about the causes of the Colombian conflict, which started in the 50s. Um, with the establishment of FARC, a uh, far left-wing illegal army, um, as it were, and also the post-war peace process in Colombia. <clears throat> and we're going to be doing this episode in view of the recent uprisings and protests in Colombia and around the world. Um, but we'll obviously be returning to this later, um, after we've given a, a huge sort of amount of context as to why um, these protests have become so violent, given the context of 50 years of civil war. And um, yeah, we thought honing in on the root causes of the conflict would be part of like a bigger um, contribution to the peace process in general. But first of all, it, I think we should um, have you both introduce yourselves. So who would like to go first? Uh, yes, thanks, Mel. So my name is Paola. I am Colombian and I've lived in the UK for the past 12 years. Um, but I was born and grew up in Colombia and experienced uh, myself a lot of uh, sort of violence. Um, and I studied anthropology, so I have a, a quite um, big understanding of sort of the historical context of Colombia and, and a big interest, of course, in the politics and things that we're going to be talking today. So, Thank you. yeah, that's me. Thank you. Thanks, Mel. Um, I'm Mary and I'm British, but I lived in Colombia in 2014, 2015. Um, and I'm doing a PhD at the moment, um, looking at the intersections between the Colombian armed conflict and drug policies. And I'm really interested in how these are experienced by people and understood and made sense of. So first of all, I think we're just going to talk a little bit about the some of the um, current figures on, on the political protest going on at the moment and we're just starting with that as a way to introduce the the larger and more broad topic of the Colombian um, armed conflict and the peace process so um, if people don't already know there have been for the last two months um, very violent protests going on all around Colombia and 904 social leaders have been killed since the peace process was signed 
in 2016, but another 12 leaders have been killed within the last two months of the protest. Um, so that's just to kind of give a an insight as to just how serious um, this is. And by social leaders, Paula, um, do you mind explaining what we mean by social leaders? Social leaders are come from different fronts, different groups. So they can be indigenous people, um, students, um, community organizers, um, environmentalists, um, teachers, people from unions, etc. So from different fronts, because at the moment we have different groups uh, sort of expressing the, themselves in the, in the protests. So yes, people from different fronts, fronts have been killed in this context. And... Do you mind one of you explaining why the these protests have been going on? Um, yeah, so it all started with a tax reform bill that uh, was proposed by the government in April. Um, that it was a way to recover um, money that the government has been losing throughout the pandemic. And it basically meant they were going to put task, tax on products that at the moment don't have tax or have very little task, tax. Sorry, I keep saying task. Um, yeah, so products that were originally 0% were going to then have a 19% tax. This caused a lot of disruption, a lot of discontent from the people. Um, and that was kind of like what made the protest emerge. But then they became something else and people started kind of uh, protesting about many other things that they are not very happy about. Um, but yeah, we can we can call this tax reform bill as the beginning of this year's protests because, of course, in the last couple of years there have been other sort of um, events of killings, of things that have been happening. If we now sort of cut back to the 1950s, which is um, when the Colombian armed conflict, the I think Paolo, you've called it, said it to me as the violent years started. Can we just talk a little bit about why the conflict arose? Because, I mean, it's still going on to an extent today, but it supposedly has... Um, ended with the peace process in, that started and was signed in 2016. But yeah, basically, why why did the conflict arise and what, what were the causes? Yeah, so I'd like to give a little bit of context of um, the fact that Colombia is a country that has been living um, in civil war for over 50 years. Um, we could say that it all starts from the colonization times, but that's too far to go. <laughs> so um, um, we can we can we can talk about an important kind of year in the Columbia history in the in the twentieth century, which is nineteen forty eight, um, with the killing of Jorge Eliezer Gaitan, who was a liberal politician with very progressive ideas, uh, populist kind of figure, a figure that the people really liked, um, was assassinated. This ended with um, a wave of violence that the country has not seen in, in a long time. Um, and that's kind of like the beginning of a really strong way, strong ways of protesting that people kind of took on. Um, this kind of violence spreads across the country um, 
Um, it also um, helps sort of in the creation of illegal groups that without ideology kind of created themselves to sort of fight against each other. Um, there were two political parties at the time, the liberal and the conservative, who were sort of um, fighting against each other very strongly. And um, it's what we can call the beginning, a little bit, the beginning of paramilitaries versus guerrillas in Colombia. On the political, sort of legal side of things, there was the creation of the National Front, um, which was a way of division uh, of power between liberals and conservatives, um, where they took... Um, power for 16 years in terms of in terms of four years each which means that uh, that was kind of great to sort of pacify the country a little bit but in reality what it produced was um, a sense of political exclusion so other sort of parties like uh, communist or left-wing parties were sort of left behind or outside that sort of um, pattern or model. And then, then other types of um, groups, um, insurgent groups such as FARC and ELN were created in the sort of um, early 60s. Um, they they did with the help of uh, sort of external what was happening in the world with communism, communist ideas, etc. Um, they were fighting for inequality, for resistance, for um, the right to the land. Uh, there were populist mo populist movements. Um, they were writing, fighting for the right reasons. Uh, but this period intensifies the violence in Colombia um, because then later on when they were wondering how they would fund um, their war um, they found that uh, drugs were a good way to kind of um, to allow them to continue the funding of their cause and that's where the whole drug trafficking sort of issue starts as well. Which Mary is an expert on and she's going to talk to us about this in more detail. Um, has a big, big impact in how this war has been designed in a way. So I guess when, when people think of Colombia, people here in the UK, often what comes to mind is cocaine and Pablo Escobar and drugs trafficking. But I think this, A, this sort of... This view isn't very reflective of um, Colombia's conflict um, because, as Paula's just said, it is so, so complex. But also this sensationalised view of drugs trafficking and cocaine doesn't, tell, doesn't paint the full picture of drugs policy and the, the sort of structural factors um, and geopolitical structures that are conducive to illegal drugs trafficking. What you definitely do have is a situation where um, this illegal economy has very much transformed um, the intensity and scale of the violence as it's provided funding for the different uh, groups and fueled corruption um, in the government. 
And what you also have is many rural farmers across Colombia who are dependent on coca farming for their survival, really, to to pay for um, food and send their kids to school and things like that. Because drugs are illegal and the production of drugs is illegal, um, the farmers who who do grow coca and who may process it or are involved at some some point in the kind of drug economy chain are criminalised and stigmatised for their participation. Um, and then you have the state's um, response, which with support from the United States, have deployed five strategies in their efforts to eradicate drugs trafficking. Um, So these include extradition, uh, crop substitution, aerial fumigation with glyphosate, um, a militarised approach and eradication. And these have been violent. They've essentially pumped... tons more money into the conflict um, without fulfilling the goal of reducing drug production, reducing um, drug consumption um, or reducing the violence that goes with it. To perhaps give a little bit of um, insight to what the violence actually looks like, because I know from my own very privileged position of living in a non-war-torn country as England, um, understanding what a civil war or a war-torn country looks like can be quite, well, difficult to imagine. Um, And so I was wondering, Paola, would you share with us some of your experiences of what the violence maybe looks like and what um, your memories are of the conflict. <laughs> yeah, Mel, um, that's that's interesting because um, when when I was at university, um, they asked us to do an essay once where the title had to be "My Life at Sixty Years Old." That that was all the instruction they gave us, and we just have to write an essay about what, what our life was. We were six at this point. I must have been, I don't know, 20 years old. Um, so I had to really think hard. I had to really think hard about um, what happened when I was six. And the, the initial memory, of course, there were lots of happy memories. I don't want to sound um, too sad. <laughs> but the initial memory was um, the time of Pablo Escobar. And, and the fear I used to have um, at six years old of being in a shopping center or in a bus, thinking there could be a bomb anytime. And that's quite terrifying when you think about it. You were thinking that when you were six. So that that's the Colombians in the really early, the Colombian in the really early 90s. Um, so that's my very initial memory of violence. Um, it took different shapes. Um, uh, when I was more about nine or ten years old, so I lived in this little town um, um, dominated by um, illegal groups. And every now and again, the army would come and do some patrol, like um, every three months or so. And that was that was always um, a moment of a lot of confrontation. So a lot of shooting and things like that. So I remember also kind of being awakened at night with um, the sounds of the shootings 
and I was kind of hiding, running in the place where we were living in the flat to hide underneath a solid wall. So that's another memory um, of more sort of raw war, right? Um, again, a few years later, um, one of the strategies that the paramilitaries used to use in the region where I used to live uh, was to knock down power plants. And but actually that one I was telling you earlier that, that one is, is is a nice memory because in one of those times when they knocked down the power plants, we were without electricity for about a month. So you didn't have any other chance but to hang out with your family <laughs> with candles and yeah, there was no destruction, no TV, no things like that. But so I guess what I wanna tell with these stories is that um the violence it's so ingrained in ourselves as Colombians that all these stories are quite normal. Um, the stories of a taxi driver who got killed because he thought differently from the others or because he was looking a little bit more alternative than others. Um, that's, that's very much what Colombia looks like, um, depending on which region you live and which side you're on. Um, you will always encounter um, someone who will judge you um, and you will get kidnapped or you will get killed or, you know, we have kidnappings in my family as well, um, things like that. So generally, um, that, that's what it looks like when you kind of grow up in Colombia. Um, it takes different forms, it takes different shapes in, in the context of the protests. Um, it goes from um, brutality from the police to um, uh, sexual sexual abuse, uh, people being shot in the eyes for protesting, uh, um, people being killed, people being disappeared. Um, it takes different different shapes. That's pretty much what it looks like. I don't know for you, Mary, what kind of violence you experienced. Well, when I was there in 2014, I think... The government was in conversations with the FARC, so like beginning the um, yeah the peace negotiations, and and I was really kind of surprised by being there by how unviolent <laughs> is that the word? Mm. How unviolent it seemed, and you know I was able to um, travel around and feel safe. Um, and I think that's that was only seven years ago, six or seven years ago. Um, so that's what's so sad, really, about what's um, what's happening now, because you have this situation Paula just described, and then it kind of was really improved as people were hopeful that that the conflict was going to come to an end. Um, and people really wanted it, the FARC wanted it, and now you've got it sort of unravelling as 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 it's not sort of coming to fruition. Absolutely, and a feeling that something that was supposedly resolved by the 2016 signing of the peace process or the starting of the peace process hasn't actually mm. so far started it. In terms of the peace process, um, 
I wondered whether you could both um, talk to us about what is involved in in the Colombian peace process. So, for example, when it when it started, which we know obviously it was the peace process was the documents were signed in 2016, but who was helping to organise and orchestrate the, the peace process? So the first thing that's important to say is that it's the peace agreement was made between the Colombian state and the FARC, um, so it didn't involve all the various groups um, that participated in the conflict. Um, and it included a official end to the conflict, so that meant the FARC di- disarming and entering into kind of reintegration zones and beginning a process of re- yeah, reintegration and rehabilitation into society. Um, political participation as well, which meant that the FARC would become a formal um, political party, um, land reform, so giving campesinos or peasants um, better access to land, a solution to the um, illegal drug problem which mainly consisted of a crop substitution programme, so the idea was that farmers would give up their coca crops and be given um, monetary subsidies and crops in return, or like legal crops in return, um, and that the state would only fumigate and eradicate their coca crops or to farmers who hadn't signed up to this, and then a victim's rights, or rights and transitional justice process, which included a truth commission and a special court um, that would give non-prison-based sentences to... Um, actors in the conflict um, and various other mechanisms. Sorry, so the previous Colombian government and the FARC um, signed this peace agreement but it because for decades the Colombian government had kind of blamed the FARC for a lot of the problems in society and tried to defame like the mainstream discourse was that they were a terrorist group a drug trafficking group um, so a lot of people weren't totally supportive of the peace agreement and it went to a referendum and it lost by a very narrow vote um, and then the government made some amends and passed it through anyway so it's quite a I don't know if like contentious is the right word but it didn't have huge amounts of support anyway and then the government changed and Duque, Ivan Duque, the current president, his government um, doesn't support the peace process and doesn't support the kind of um, negotiation with, with the FARC. I don't know if you'd want to add. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> that's very important to say because what happened is that um, the soldiers from those armies were people who were left out in the middle of a process, a peace process that didn't happen, um, very much judged by the fact that they are ex-combatants. Mm-hmm. And 
without job opportunities, without access to land, without the things they have been promised. Um, once they also gave back their guns, which is the one thing they had that they knew how to use, they, they, they knew how to live with and they knew what to do with. Um, a lot of these people nowadays uh, are either displaced or have come to Cali, which is now the center city of the protest. Um, demobilized um, ex-soldiers from this process um, are people who are not really knowing what to do. Um, and it's one of the many, many reasons that the protests are happening as well. Like, what happened with all these promises and all these people? So, as you said, not only is one of the sort of fallouts from this peace process being like the peace process, what what's been promised under the peace process not coming to fruition has that's resulted in some of the protests, um, or is one of the reasons why the protests have occurred recently and over the last years. Um, but are there other reasons? that the peace process is seen to not be necessarily working. Yes. <laughs> it's one of the many reasons people are protesting. It goes back to what I said before and that the government has just been so slow at implementing um, most of these agreements. Um, so, for example, in terms of point four, which is the solution to the illegal drugs problem, um, what you have is a situation where many of the farmers who were promised um, money and promised alternative crops have destroyed their coca plants, which they were relying on for income essentially, and to be able to buy food and send their kids to school, etc. Um, but they've not received anything back in return. So they have, some may have re-sowed coca seeds uh, or be regrowing coca plants in another area. So it's, it's not fulfilling the government's goal in um, reducing um, coca production. And they can then come in, or they have been coming in, and... Um, Take it like manually taking out the coca crops with force aggressively, um, and nothing. I guess just that nothing's really changed for a lot of these people, or it has gotten worse. Um, I think there's another point to make about whether this kind of policy, um, a like alternative crop substitution program, would work anyway. Because, first of all, it relies on point one, which was the land reform. And that, it, I suppose it's much... One of the reasons that, um, at the moment, because it's owned by a really small group of people, as it is here, but even more so in Colombia, and it would be kind of dividing it up and allowing peasants to... Not peasants, campesinos, to buy, to buy it and own it and um, farm it themselves um, but it depends on this land reform because it's much easier for people to grow coca leaves and 
sort of be able to sell them in the next village than it is, say, bananas or something really heavy when the road, when the infrastructure isn't very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and that hasn't happened either. Um, and then you've also got, you know, this, one of the reasons that um, drug trafficking and drug production is so profitable is because there's a huge demand for it. And that's not going to go away either. So just giving people um, a different thing to grow doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to um, give them enough, we'll just give them enough money to be able to get by. Because it wasn't in the first place. It, people are growing it because they weren't able to to get by, let alone have any more money, mm-hmm. but just get by from the sort of more traditional legal crops. Mary was giving a really good overview how sort of the problem, the, the way the problem with drugs have been handled, badly handled in Colombia, affects the people there. So one of the things we could say, one of the links we could use between the protests today and, and the problem with drugs is, for example, how people are more impoverished now. Um, the levels of poverty have risen a lot with the pandemic as well, but also for the lack of opportunities. So the lack of opportunities is um, students not being able to have access to education or to proper education, people not being able to access uh, jobs, um, people not having land, people um, living on, on very minimum conditions of quality of life. Um um, people just basic the, the, the basic needs being unsatisfied all the time, um, and and that's because the the wealth is very much concentrated in the hands of few, and the majority always goes um, missing or with with the least they can. Um, the conflict in itself has brought a lot of displaced people, so people who would have been in 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 the countryside instead growing food are now impoverished and displaced in the big cities like Cali. So all of these, all of these social problems, all of these types of people who are suffering from poverty really and inequality are the ones who are protesting today for different reasons. So I mentioned the tax reform, but after having um, uh, won against the tax reform and um, one of the ministers having resigned um, with all the protests, within the context of the protests, then people went like, uh, actually there are many other reasons we need to protest about. We are unhappy about the pension system, we are unhappy about the health system, we are unhappy about education. Um, Cali is a city of a lot of young people who, again, don't have access to proper education. Um, we are unhappy about everything. The violence, police brutality, everything. And that's kind of where, why it's taking us where we are at the moment. With a lot of things to kind of demand um, about. The, I think also the idea or the notion, even where, like going back to last week's episode with Ovi in Sri Lanka, we discussed at the beginning about the concept of 
peace processes and even like when I think about it the it's I can't visualize it because these are like you've just been saying these are this is a country these are countries that have been uh, I mean traumatized <laughs> by violence and and have experienced a breakdown of everything stable so the idea that you can just pick up you pick up the pieces and move on is it doesn't often happen and also Ovi made this point that um and I don't know what you two think about this in relation to Colombia but that often and it will be interesting regarding the truth commission but that often truth completely disappears like that you can't get like once you have these civil and internal conflicts that the truth often just disappears because so many people have their own opinions and ideas and people and there's so much propaganda and stuff going on that even perhaps even the the cause of the conflict as it as it began when it began no longer exists anymore i mean like i think you can see that in the uk as well and like debates about um brexit and and things like that like it it sometimes feels impossible to to know what's true um and i think that like in the case of the colombian context i I don't know if, like the the notion of there being a kind of a truth, well, like one truth of what happened, does really exist because it's been going on for so long and experienced by so many people in different ways that it's kind of many complementary truths. Um, and I think I imagine that that's what the truth repeats the truth commission report will will produce as well it will have a a narrative that's built up of lots of different accounts that a lot of people will still disagree with but mm. it will be the state's kind of official acknowledgement of this is what happened and this is why it happened and this is what needs to happen for it to um not be repeated mm. On that basis, like the, the Colombia has set up a truth commission, and there's there's this the peace process is really working towards um, the idea that it, things this this conflict must be remembered, and that the difficulties that people have had cannot be forgotten. Um, and I don't know. I remember listening to an episode about the. Um, maybe it was enforced disappearances in Guatemala or something like this and that, that it was so traumatic that the just as any any situation like this is um that the older generations didn't want to remember it but that there was a recent youth movement trying to bring back the old memories and like trying to get their grandparents or whoever to talk about what they had experienced and obviously that's a really difficult process to be had but and as Ovi was saying last week, that is just so important. And I wondered whether there's a. I mean, I know you were mentioning when with the with the signing of the peace process that that was somewhat controversial. But do people want to remember what's happened in order to move on, or are people so traumatized that they want to forget? I think the 
like what's going on in Colombia is quite unusual in that um, in other countries to have gone through transitional justice processes, often the Truth Commission report kind of makes those sorts of conversations possible and enables people to remember and talk about what happened um, what happened in the conflict. Whereas in Colombia you had um, grassroots community groups, you also had state sanctioned groups like Paolo already mentioned the, Nas- the National Centre for Historical Memory um, operating during violence and before a truth commission um, or transitional justice process was established. Um, so for quite some time now, there've, there have been groups remembering and engaged in different activities to communicate their memories as a way to challenge um, the mainstream discourse about what happened, about who is considered to be a victim, um, to yeah, to to raise awareness of of what's going on and to remember people that have died and something I was thinking, and I guess it relates to what you to the other podcast you recorded about um, the peace process in Sri Lanka and also what Paul has been saying about um, this kind of tendency to revo- resolve things with violence. Mm. Um, and that I guess the whole, like, embedded in the peace process and the idea of transitional justice is, like, things like forgiveness, forgiving, um telling the truth, accepting responsibility, um, accountability. Mm. And they're really challenging things, like even on an individual level, like in your own life, how hard it can be sometimes to actually say sorry and admit you did something wrong and um, or have someone do that to you and be able to move past it. And like, I just think that on a kind of national <laughs> level in a country that's been at war for was it 60 years like it's it really is a really really difficult process and the kind of things that people are expected to do this or not expected but um are hoping that that they can do this and get through this uh i just have something to add in regarding the discussion around truth in the context of the protest because um, I was looking at um, there was another monument torn down, um, the monument of Sebastián Belalcázar in Cali when the protest started Um, it was torn down by by an indigenous group of people from the region and what they were saying is that they wanted to reconstruct history, to sort of remake memories, claim a historic memory of what that person meant for them. So under the truth of the state, this person was one of the fathers of different cities, the founder, right? So that's the truth of the state. This, this was this great man un conquistador, a conquistador, Spanish conquistador, who who did very great and 
So Belalcázar was yes the founder of Cali, Quito, different cities, Pasto, in the south of Colombia and Ecuador, um, and that's what this figure historically has been. Uh, for them, it was they actually um, carried out a trial over this person, the figure of this person, um, and uh, they are saying that he. They trial him for genocide, appropriation of land, and dispossession, among others. Um, they want to propose new symbols that identify them. So this is the new truth for them. Um, so it's another way to see the truth as well, sort of in the context of these protests, um, how new, new truths are being reconstructed as well. Okay. So... Um to move on from this situation um, that Colombia has faced and is still facing, um, are there not only any positives, or for want of a better word, positives that we can draw from not only the protests that have been going on recently, but the the recent years um, in within the police process? Um, but also, do you have any advice or takeaways or key lessons that you hope listeners can take away? Um, yeah, we've seen in this um, um, in this new protest um, many interesting kind of actors. Uh, it's, it's always generally the young people who go out there um, and, and face Sorry, it's always the young people who go out there and face the protests um, or are like the front line of the protests. But in this case, um, you see a lot of mums as well going out there in the points of concentration to cook, to be along with their children, um, sort of being part of it. Um, teachers, um, different types of people that before didn't used to, to protest the, the middle class. In this particular case, this tax reform was going to affect them directly. Um, and we have seen a decentralization of the protest um, that we have no, no see, not seen before. So um, traditionally, the protests take place in the center of the city, in the main sort of plazas. Um, in this case, we have seen protests going in different neighborhoods that never were never reached before. Um, um, people stopping the cars or the taxis, doing pedagogic activities, kind of explaining what's going on and involving people a lot more. So that has been very positive. Um, I would just add to that by um, talking a bit about a protest here in Bristol that we were both involved in um, a kind of solidarity um, protest to everything going on in Colombia and to raise aware of it here in the UK. And I think I think that in the UK we, we have a lot to learn from um, sort of the ways in which Colombia protests because there were really um, creative activities going on like traditional dancing um a minute silence um the names of everyone who's been killed in the protest so far were read out and kind of laid out on the ground for everyone to see um 
there was a collage of um, pictures from Colombia, a kind of almost a mural of, of what was going on there. And it was just a really, really emotive, powerful way to communicate things. Um, and I think, as Paola was just describing, the, the various pedagogical activities to educate people about why the protest is going on, what can people do? Um, I just think there's some really interesting um, activities there that that um, could be applied in other scenarios, maybe in other contexts. People in Bristol, well, in, in the UK, in Bristol we are specifically, but in the UK have also been uh, advised to contact their, their, GP, their GPs. <laughs> um, have been advised to contact the MPs, um, explaining what's going on in Colombia and requesting for, for political pressure, international political pressure to be put on as well so that um, it goes beyond Colombia. And I think it has caused quite a good effect because you can see many, many countries are sort of carrying out activities. And Colombians, Colombians and non-Colombians as well have been very active in sort of um, uh, diffusing the information. Is that a word? Diffusing. Um, for the Colombians listening to this and are abroad, um, register your cedulas, your IDs as well, and your local consulates to vote, make, be part of the process. That's very important. And vote for the right people. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> If you are interested or concerned by any of the issues raised during this podcast, then please get in touch at contact at earthrights.co.uk or visit our website www.earthrights.co.uk. You can find full recordings of all of the episodes on most podcast platforms or on the Earthrights website, referenced in the show notes. We host a blog on there too, as well as recommendations and other information. Please also join in on the journey by following our Twitter and Instagram accounts at earthrights underscore. If you would like to be involved in an episode of the Earthrights podcast, then please also get in touch. This Earthrights podcast was hosted, produced and edited by us. Music and sounds were specially made for Earthrights by the Mowgli Wild Boys, who are currently recording a new LP at Circuit Studios in Nottingham. Please follow their Instagram and Facebook at Mowgli Wild Boys.